Hello, this is Louis Gang. Do you love my voice? Do you want my voice in your podcast or YouTube episodes? I can do the perfect voiceover for your brand or company too. It can be for either a podcast, YouTube channel or for your own personal use. Don't worry it's very cheap and affordable. Email me at info.louigang254 at gmail.com or visit fiverr.com slash louigang and make your first order, the link is on the description. I'm looking forward to working and connecting with you. What is up, Ewoo crew? Today, we are covering the bizarre case of Jody Huizentrout. On June 5th, 1995, Jody Huizentrout of Mason City, Iowa, celebrated her 27th birthday. Her friend, John Van Sice, threw her a birthday party, which she captured on video. That video would later become a source of great speculation when, three weeks later, Jody disappeared without a trace. Jody was an anchorwoman on the KIMT morning show Daybreak in Mason City. On June 27, 1995, she was due to arrive at the station at 4 a.m. to prepare for the show, which started at 6 a.m. Jody never showed up for work. Her red Mazda Miata was found in the parking lot of her apartment complex, and personal belongings, including a car key, lay strewn on the ground nearby. Neighbors reported hearing screams. All evidence pointed to Jody having been abducted. But who would do this, and why? And where is Jody's body? The sunny temperatures are here one day, then they disappear the next. Jody Sue was born in 1968 to Maurice and Jane Husentrout of Long Prairie, Minnesota. By all accounts, she had a perfectly normal childhood in Minnesota, alongside her older sisters Jill and Joanne. Shortly after her 14th birthday in 1982, Jody's father Maurice died. As tragic as that likely was, Maurice was spared the unthinkable devastation the family would experience 13 years later. Jody and her mother were close, often taking trips together. In October 1994, they went on a cruise, during which time Jody met a man she liked. She talked about it in her journal, questioning why she got hooked so fast and mentioning she was lonely. There is no evidence that anything further ever came of that relationship. After Jody disappeared, her mother and sisters worked tirelessly to find answers. In the years that followed her disappearance, Jane Husentrout became convinced her daughter's body was at the bottom of the lake near her home. Jane passed away in 2014, never finding the answers she had so desperately sought. Older sister, Joanne Nath, is still active in all the efforts to find justice for Jody. For years, she has appeared on both local and national TV shows about the case. She was definitely too trusting, Joanne said during her interview for the show 48 Hours back in 2018. When Jody failed to show up for work by 4 a.m., her producer, Amy Coons, called her. She would later say that it wasn't like Jody to be late. Her job was important to her, and she always made every effort to be there on time. Jody answered the phone and said she had overslept, but would be leaving soon. 
What time is it? She asked the question, so I told her, Joe, it's about 10 to 4. You need to come into work. How much time is left to produce on the show? I mean, she was obviously thinking. She was aware. She just knew she had overslept and she had to get into work. The show didn't start until 6, so she still had some time to get there and get ready before she had to be in front of the camera. But by 6 a.m., Jody still hadn't arrived. It was obvious something was very wrong. The police were called and Amy filled in for Jody on the show. The scene the police encountered when they arrived at Jody's apartment complex would haunt Jody's family and friends forever. Her red Mazda Miata was still in the parking lot, and her personal belongings, such as the key to her car, a pair of red shoes, a hairdryer, and a bottle of hairspray, lay strewn on the ground nearby. A palm print was found on the car, but it was never determined who it belonged to. When they entered Jody's apartment, it appeared nothing was out of the ordinary, until they walked in to her bathroom. The toilet seat was left up, which was extremely strange for a single woman who lived alone. Eerily enough, Jody's belongings lay scattered in her apartment, as though she intended to come back later and straighten up. But Jody would never return. Jody's body has never been found, and sadly, police never properly processed the crime scene. Due to the fact that they didn't even bother to tape it off, the evidence could have been easily contaminated or lost. Jody's car wasn't even kept as evidence for very long. It was given back to her family right after her disappearance. But other disturbing clues quickly began to surface. A man named Randy Linderman was carpooling down the street in front of Jody's apartment complex the very morning of her disappearance. Parking lights were on. No, I think it was far enough over so no one could get by with another vehicle. Well, they they gave me a lie detector test to see if I seen what I saw. He had been down that road many times, but this time he noticed a van he had never seen before. Now, this is where things get really really creepy. The white Ford Econoline van was parked in front of Jody's apartment, with the parking lights on, but the headlights off. I saw a white van parked in the parking area. Having gone down that road many times, I'd never seen it there before. If I had to say a time, I'd probably say 3.50 a.m., Randy stated. Later that day, when Randy found out about the disappearance, he contacted the police to report what he saw that morning. They immediately started following the tip, but wouldn't ask for the public's help until a week later. No one who lived in the complex had a vehicle of that type registered to them. Years later, a woman who lived across the street reported having seen a van from her window early that morning. She also reported hearing doors opening and closing. I remember for... 4.30 a.m., hearing a car door. I'd never heard it before. The street was really, really quiet. I saw what looked to be a white or a light gray van on the street. Not in the parking lot, but on the street. I really didn't think too much about it. I didn't see any people. As I was falling back asleep, I heard another door close. When I woke up two hours later, the van was gone. The van was never found and no more sightings were reported. In almost 25 years, 
Randy Linderman has never wavered in what he saw and in what kind of van it was. Another witness claimed to hear something alarming that morning. Jody, open the door. I know you're in there. A very big person of interest from early on in the case was Jody's friend, John Van Sice. I even named my boat after her because just, just because she's Jody and, and she's, she's been such a big part of my life here lately. And... A mutual friend, Annie Cruz, said that her and Jody met him at a bar one night. John Van Sice had previously lived in the same apartment complex as Jody, and this commonality caused the two to begin talking and strike up a friendship, despite the fact that John was 22 years older than Jody. John has always vehemently denied any involvement whatsoever in Jody's disappearance, and police have never charged him with anything. He always cooperated with detectives, answering questions and submitting to DNA and lie detector tests. Despite this, there are several things that continue to make the public speculate about him. John was one of the last people to see Jody alive. The night before her disappearance, Jody went over to his house to watch the video of the birthday party he had thrown her a few weeks earlier. John gave this information to investigators as soon as they began to question him. The weekend before Jody disappeared, she went on a water skiing trip with several friends, including John. That same day, Jody and a friend spent time on a boat owned by two men who they had just met. People have speculated that John was jealous that Jody was spending time with men closer to her own age. But the friend that was with Jody stated, John never acted upset. But he was clearly not enthused according to cold case investigator Steve Ridge, who actually spoke to witnesses who were there that night. Strangely enough, one of these younger men who owned the boat decided to videotape Jody drinking, singing, and dancing. This would be the last video ever taken of Jody, and it has never been released to the public. According to a news station who requested to get their hands on this intriguing footage, it's in the hands of investigators only. The man's identity has also been kept a hushed secret. He was allegedly notorious for luring women onto his boat so he could videotape them. Further speculation has been that John had a romantic interest in Jody. However, John told Steve Ridge that that is far from true. He said Jody was like a daughter to him, and that he actually had a girlfriend during the time he knew Jody, but they hadn't gone public yet. It has been said that John named his boat Jody, fueling speculation about what his intentions were. In his interview with Steve Ridge, John stated that was never the official name of the boat. He just called it that informally, and Jody was flattered by it. In February 2020, the Oxygen program, Up and Vanished, featured an episode about Jody, including never-before-released footage of the birthday party video. Retired FBI profiler Jim Clement told Up and Vanished producers, Every time Jody would dance with another guy, John would have laser focus on Jody and whoever she was talking to. He had a really evil look in his eyes, like he was really pissed off. 
friend of John named LaDonna Woodford, who claims she was with John the morning Jody disappeared, responded to Clement's statement by telling producers, If we're saying John's guilty just based off his facial expressions, that doesn't cut mustard with me. Ever since Jody's disappearance, LaDonna has fiercely defended John. Several years ago, a search warrant was issued for GPS data from two vehicles belonging to John Van Syce. The warrant was ordered sealed until only just recently, but they show nothing of significance. In April 2019, it was reported that John Van Syce, now in his 70s, is suffering from an aggressive form of Alzheimer's, making any further contributions by him about this case very unlikely. In March 2017, John Van Syce was subpoenaed to appear before a grand jury at the U.S. District Court in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. John, now living in Arizona, told Steve Ridge that he was promised round-trip airline tickets to appear in court. When the tickets never materialized, John became frightened that he would be arrested for failing to appear in court, thus making him look guilty. So he and his wife drove all night to Iowa, nearly 1,500 miles, to be there on time. When John showed up to court, he was fingerprinted and given a DNA swab. He was never asked to testify. The court declined to indict John, and no reason was ever given for why he was subpoenaed in the first place. Oddly enough, the search warrant to obtain the GPS data on his two vehicles was obtained less than three weeks after that court date. Two decades before John was subpoenaed, his friend LaDonna was also ordered to appear before a federal grand jury. During that time, she testified that she and John would take walks together in the morning. At 6 a.m. on the morning of Jody's disappearance, LaDonna called John at home on his landline to confirm their morning walk. They went for their walk at 7 a.m., just mere hours after Jody vanished, and John didn't seem anxious or otherwise out of the ordinary. They didn't yet know that Jody was missing. The jury declined to issue any indictments on that occasion either. It has never been officially confirmed that someone was stalking Jody Husentrout, but things that Jody said in the weeks and months leading up to her disappearance have caused some of her friends and family to believe that was the case. Jody had mentioned to several people an incident in which a man in a black pickup truck followed closely behind her while she was out jogging one day. She said the experience made her feel uncomfortable. This occurred around seven months before she disappeared. Jody became fearful when she spotted the same truck follow her to work on multiple occasions. She went to the police who gave her a police escort to work on some mornings. Jody started taking a self-defense class, which she finished three months before she vanished. Her mother recalled her crying to her over the phone about it. And then that guy had been following her one day when she was out jogging. Who knows, maybe that was it. It didn't leave her with a good feeling, Jody's sister Joanne Nate stated on Up and Vanished. Because of her line of work, Jody was constantly in the public eye. It wasn't unusual for her to get strange phone calls from men who had seen her on TV and developed a fascination with her. These had been increasing with intensity for months before she disappeared. 
Jody wrote a letter to her friend, Kelly Torgelson, in Mississippi, shortly before she vanished. In the letter, Jody expressed concerns for her safety and said she was being stalked. Oddly enough, the letter arrived the same day Jody disappeared. The Redwood County Sheriff's Department reports tornado. Then that's more tragic. There's a lot to think about here. In the months following Jody's disappearance, two different men were arrested for stalking anchor women in Iowa and Minnesota. But no connection was ever able to be made between those incidents and Jody's case. On April 5th, 1995, Billy Pruin, a friend of Jody's, was found dead with a gunshot wound to his chest at his home just south of Mason City. Billy's fiance said he had been acting troubled about something shortly before his death. Jody was shaken up by this incident and had been investigating it before her disappearance only three months later. Did Jody know something? We will never know for sure. In 2019, a new development occurred that might shed more light on what actually happened. The case of Billy Pruin's death has never been solved. It is considered a cold case in Iowa, unlike Jody's case, which has never been closed. Investigative journalist Steve Ridge said that a woman on death row in Minnesota, Angela Johnson, corresponded with him through email and telephone. She told him that her boyfriend, Dustin Honkin, spoke to her about Jody's disappearance. Dustin Honkin is a drug kingpin currently on death row for his involvement in the same crime that Angela Johnson was sentenced to death for, the execution-style murder of five people in 1993. Prior to being charged and convicted for the 1993 murders, there had been a drug charge for Dustin Honkin that was dropped when two of the key witnesses vanished. The day Dustin Honkin was released from prison for the drug charge is the same day Billy Pruin's fiance claims he acted troubled. Two weeks later, Billy Pruin was dead. Three months later, Jody Husentrout disappeared. Dustin Honkin was scheduled to be sentenced to death by lethal injection on January 15, 2020. That has been put on hold due to some legal arguments concerning the drug used in the executions. Only time will tell if this delay will cause Dustin Honkin to admit any involvement or even any information at all into Jody Husentrude's case. While he has nothing to lose, he also has nothing to gain. He's not likely to reveal anything out of any effort to do the right thing, so it's hard to know what would motivate him enough to talk. In 2019, the owner of the website findjody.com put three billboards up in Mason City, Iowa. Each billboard shows a picture of Jody Husentrout next to the words, someone knows something. Is it you? On New Year's Eve, one of the billboards, which has since been replaced, was vandalized. The most striking fact about this is not the fact that someone vandalized the billboard. It's what they wrote across it in yellow spray paint. Frank Stearns Machine Shed. Frank Stearns is a retired Mason City police officer who at one time worked on the Jody Husentrout case. He is a respected member of the community and has never been a suspect. In fact, the only other time his name has been brought up publicly 
to suggest he possibly had any involvement was back in 2011. In September 2011, the Mason City Gazette ran a story about allegations of police involvement in Jody's abduction. In August that year, Mason City Police Officer Maria Ohl was fired after coming forward with information concerning police misconduct in the Jody Husentrud case. I was terminated just on August 4th, at the beginning of August 3rd, not quite a month ago, and it's actually in relation to the Jody Husentrud case. This is where things take a completely unexpected turn. The story that led to these allegations stretches back even further than that. Twelve years earlier, in fact, to the summer of 1999. After a church service in the summer of 1999, Mason City resident Gerald Best approached his pastor, Reverend Shane Philpot. Mr. Best had mentioned local officers possibly being involved in criminal activities, Philpot told the Gazette. Then, something unbelievable happened. On December 30th, 1999, 50-year-old Gerald Best was found dead with his throat slashed in his Mason City home. The murder has never been solved. Eight years later, in the summer of 2007, Reverend Philpot received a mysterious phone call from someone in Minnesota. The caller had watched the pastor's television program, Faith in Action, and decided to call him with information he had on the death of Jody Husentrout. He said his information incriminated several Mason City police officers, so he didn't want to talk to local authorities. He did not give the officers names. Remembering what happened to Gerald Best, Reverend Philpot became very concerned. Wanting to go through proper channels, he contacted his sister-in-law, Officer Maria Ohl, who told him the proper procedure was to contact the police department. When Reverend Philpot called the police department, he spoke with Frank Stearns. The response he received was bizarre. He was told they would get back to him about it, but not to talk to anyone about it in the meantime. A month later, after not hearing from anyone, he called and spoke to Frank Stearns again. This time, he was transferred to another officer, who simply told him his information wasn't credible. Two years later, the church was involved in a lawsuit involving the Mason City Police Department. While preparing for the case, lawyers obtained contact logs, but there was no record of Reverend Philpot's calls regarding the Jody Husentrude case. Tony Jackson was living two blocks from the KIMT station during the time of Jody's disappearance. A friend of Tony's at the time said that Tony had taken up an interest in broadcasting while attending the local community college. The same friend also talked about an incident in which Tony invited him to go to Jody's favorite bar, the Southbridge Lounge. How did Tony know that Jody was a regular at the Southbridge Lounge? That puzzled the friend as well. It's very possible that Jody might have mentioned it on the air at some point. According to her sister Joanne, Jody was too trusting. She would often talk about different aspects of her personal life while she was on the air. According to the friend, Jody was there at the time they visited the bar. Tony went over and talked to her 
while the friend stayed back. The friend just assumed he was talking to her about broadcasting, since it was something he was interested in. He didn't think any more of it, until two years later. In 1997, Tony Jackson was convicted of assaulting four women, in a way we can't specifically state on YouTube, in Minnesota and Iowa. In all the cases, stalking was involved. Tony Jackson is currently serving a life sentence in prison for the assaults. Despite the fact he allegedly bragged about abducting a news anchor to a fellow cellmate, he denies having anything to do with the disappearance of Jody. The former cellmate stated, he says, I abducted an anchor woman and killed her. He came up to me, that's when we started talking again, and then he just brought it up. He says, I abducted a, a anchor woman and killed her. He also reported that Tony wrote a suspicious rap lyric that could possibly be in reference to Jody. He said she's a stiffin around tiffin in pileage of silage in a bilo low below. Believing this was referring to the nearby town of Tiffin, police jumped into action. Armed with cadaver dogs, they thoroughly scoured a farm near a silo. But while two of the three dogs alerted, police have been unable to find any evidence connecting Tony to Jody's disappearance. The Mason City Police stated, After conducting a thorough investigation, which included interviews, crime laboratory analysis, records review, and polygraph examination, Tony Jackson is not considered, at this time, a viable suspect in the investigation. If Tony Jackson was not involved in Jody's disappearance, there were definitely some strange coincidences. Just five days before Jody disappeared, Tony had broken up with his girlfriend and was very violent. According to Caroline Lowe, an investigative reporter from Minneapolis, there was something absolutely chilling about Tony's ex-girlfriend. She looked a lot like Jody. Jody had been keeping a personal journal at the time she disappeared. The journal was taken from her apartment by police as part of the investigation and never seen again. Thirteen years later, in 2008, copies of the 84 pages of journal entries were mailed anonymously to the Mason City Globe Gazette in a brown envelope with no return address. It was later discovered that the copies were mailed by the wife of former police chief David Ellingson, who resigned in 2006. No motive was ever found or given for why his wife chose to mail the journal to the Gazette. While the journal entries that were made public show a lot about Jody's personality and other aspects about her life, none of them are very personal and none of them offer much in the way of clues. In fact, the last two weeks before she disappeared, the entries are very sparse. No one has ever seen the original journal except for law enforcement during the initial investigation. Is it possible that some entries were removed before the journal became public? Friends and family have said Jody expressed her fears to them. She was concerned that she was being stopped. She was going to change her phone number. She had even gone to the police for help. Yet, she never expressed any of these concerns in the private journal that she probably never expected anyone else to read. The day before Jody Husentrut disappeared, she attended the Mason City Chamber of Commerce golf tournament. 
She left around 8 p.m. and stopped by John Van Sice's home to watch the video of her birthday party before going home. Besides John Van Sice, the people who saw her at the golf tournament are the last that are known to have seen her before she was abducted. Several years ago, some of those people spoke to the people at findjody.com and offered more insight into that event. Two of the golfers mentioned that Jody talked about changing her phone number because of some bad phone calls she had been getting. Their perception was that she seemed more annoyed by the calls than afraid. They said her mood was upbeat. She spoke to the organizers of the event and accepted an invitation to have dinner with them later that week. Beth Bednar, author of the book The Disappearance of Jody Husentrut, spoke on the Oxygen program Up and Vanished and explained that Angela Johnson, the girlfriend of Dustin Honkin, worked at the country club where the golf tournament was held. I don't know that she talked to Jody, but she may have very well come face to face with her a number of times that evening, Bednar stated. It has been almost 25 years since Jody Husentrut disappeared. The only physical evidence of what happened to her were some of her personal belongings found next to her car, such as her red shoe, car keys, hair dryer, and hairspray. There were also drag marks on the ground and a palm print on the car. The evidence strongly suggests that Jody was grabbed from behind while unlocking her car. She struggled, lost a shoe, screamed, neighbors reported hearing a scream around that time, and was dragged away. Taking a look at today's forecast, today's forecast shows mostly windy and cool temperatures with scattered showers. Imagining what she must have felt. We no magician act. The sunny temperatures are here one day, then they disappear the next. Anything that happened after that remains a mystery. Jody's body has never been found. In May 2001, she was declared legally dead. But those who cared about Jody, especially the family and friends who knew her personally, will never give up until there are answers to this case and justice for Jody. Don't forget to hit the like button and subscribe so you never miss another video. A playlist is going to pop up right now with more videos you will love. See you guys next time. Hello, this is Louie Gang. Do you love my voice? Do you want my voice in your podcast or YouTube episodes? I can do the perfect voiceover for your brand or company too. It can be for either a podcast, YouTube channel or for your own personal use. Don't worry it's very cheap and affordable. Email me at info.louigang254 at gmail.com or visit fiverr.com slash louigang and make your first order, the link is on the description. I'm looking forward to working and connecting with you.